I'm still sitting up here on this front row by myself, but that is supposed to change this week. And I will, I will uh, use executive action on any effort to change flight plans this week. I'll, I'll sign an executive order. So I'll utilize my, my pen. How's that? So uh, she's supposed to be back Friday. And, um, but we talk every day and FaceTime just about every day. So uh, that's not the same, though. That's not the same. Uh, well, it's good to see all of you. We just thank God for his faithfulness. Thankful to see Shane and Caroline back. Our, uh, our computer just doesn't like us. Um, somebody other than Shane tried to turn it on last Sunday, and it wouldn't work. Not at all. Going live wouldn't work. Our uh, Swisher studio that we use wouldn't work. And we took the computer to core, and uh, they hit the button, and it came on. There's something spiritual going on with that computer. And because, uh, you know, Brad and I just could not get it resurrected. So I know the Lord said, oh, ye of little faith. But uh, it's good to have things back to a little bit of normality. But all glory to God for his provisions. Everything that we enjoy, I'm telling you, our country is still a great country. There's people wanting to get here. And... Um, if you've ever been overseas, there's no nation like this nation. And, uh, and I've, I've been privileged to be in a few places that are really nice places, but I, I couldn't wait to get back on this good old American soil. I titled this morning's message um, from a phrase I've heard years ago, and you probably will recognize it. I don't know if many in this room would be able to put your finger on where it comes from. But the mind is a terrible thing to waste. Does that ring a bell with anyone? Does anyone know where that originated? The United Negro College Fund. Back in the 70s, uh, they established it. And every time I heard that uh, admonition to give to that, I would say, I agree with that. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. And uh, it, it's their effort to raise donations for scholarship for underprivileged uh, young people in the African-American community. <clears throat> and what a great tool that has been to give a lot of young people the opportunity to go to college. Um, but how can one waste one's mind? Is it only because you don't have the opportunity for higher education. You know, I, I was the fourth of six children, and um, my homeroom teacher, Mr. Gorman, was kind of like our advisor. When you was a senior and you had your homeroom teacher, that's where you went, and, and that's where the day began, and he was kind of like an advisor. Only real problem with Mr. Gorman was that he was an Auburn fan, and, and uh, we had to deal with, you know, his little snippets that he would say to us. But he and I sat down, and he mapped out a, a I just loved the plan that we mapped out together, that I was going to go to uh, college and, and major in accounting and minor in finances. And I had my plan, but it was my plan. It wasn't God's plan. <clears throat> but I couldn't wait to go to college, and I was the first one in my family to go to college. And my dad was so excited that the fourth of his six children was going to go to college. And I couldn't wait to get there. I love, I love most of my 
my classes. I did not like psychology, and I did not like sociology. I don't know. One of those should have appealed to me, but I didn't like either one of them. But give me math and college algebra and all of that. I just love economics, and God just crashed in on my plan. But I'm thankful that I had a chance to go to college and not waste my mind in that I did have an opportunity to go and learn and discipline and all of those things. But what about other than that, not just not having the opportunity to hire education? How can someone waste their mind otherwise? Dr. Timothy Jennings, who wrote a book that I've referenced before, uh, The Aging Brain, he said, oxidation is damaging to the tissues of the body, which includes the brain. Therefore, anything that increases oxidation will accelerate aging and in regard, accelerate cognitive breakdown. And uh, he has a whole chapter on the use of tobacco, illegal substances, and alcohol as a major no-no to a person's development of a healthy brain. Alcohol is a big no-no because it affects the brain. And even small amounts of alcohol, this is why they tell a pregnant woman, do not drink alcohol of any source while you're pregnant because it adversely affects the development of the baby. I shouldn't really have to say anything other than that. But the studies show that children or adolescents who get introduced to that during the formative years of all of their, their body and their brain, it has an adverse effect, a permanent adverse effect on children exposed to alcohol. So <clears throat> what about uh, other things? I'm, I'm going to quote some things from a, a source because cannabis is um, one of the adverse effects on the brain. And it's just kind of, I, I can't figure out why states want to legalize marijuana. I, when I'm in Colorado, they are very vigorous in, in advertising the, the damaging of tobacco to your body. And they have these tragic people who are talking through a voice box and, and they, they're ravaged by cancer. And, and this really kind of hit home when I was 12. Uh, we went to visit my grandfather in Evansville, Indiana. He was battling lung cancer. We hadn't seen him for months. And I'll never forget walking up to his bedroom and opening the door and looking at him. And, and it was like I was in the home of a stranger. He, had, he was decimated. He was this robust man. And he, was, he had been smoking for 60 years. He started when he was six years old. He was born in 1896. And he was around tobacco farms, and kids, kids smoked. The, the studies weren't all that out that smoking is bad for. They just picked it up. When I was in Russia, children were walking around smoking. And, and I thought, well, this is a health crisis coming to Russia. But lung cancer decimated that man's body. just was tragic. We came home from that Christmas visit, and within two or three days, he passed away, and we had to go back for the memorial service. So I know up front what tobacco is, and, and so it needs to be advertised against because it's so destructive of all of your systems, whether it's the lungs, the uh, cardio, everything about the body, the tobacco is a culprit. But let me read you what cannabis does, and this is not being told. You do not hear this when this debate is going on. Cannabis can cause hallucinations, 
changes in mood, amnesia, depersonalization, paranoia, delusion, disorientation. You will find it harder to concentrate or remember things. You will find that you can't sleep well, you feel depressed, you may feel hungry, and like time is slowing down, you might have lower motivation, and cannabis can affect how you sense things. You may see, hear, or feel things differently. This is known as hallucinating. Hallucinations can be a sign of psychosis. Psychosis can be a symptom of mental illness, including schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder. These are called psychotic illnesses, and all of this is in an article of professionals reviewing the adverse effects of the use of marijuana. And you will not hear that. But guess what? The brain doesn't like that kind of stuff. And it leads people down a path of destruction. So I think we can say you're kind of wasting your mental capacity when you subject your body to things that are damaging the very brain and the functions by which your, your mind develops. So the health of the brain is directly related to the challenge of the mind is a terrible thing to waste. Actually, the mind is a wonderful thing to invest in. You might not realize it, but a few years ago, the United Negro College Fund adapted that closure to that statement. And they changed how they promote it altogether. <clears throat> no longer do they promote it as donations. They promote it as an investment. And it's a wonderful thing to invest in. I want to take you to the life of Jesus and his development, and then we're going to go, this is going to be in Matthew chapter, or Luke chapter 2, and then we're going to go to Matthew 22. But um, in, Matthew, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke records the birth of Jesus. He, he gives all these details. He's a physician. He's kind of like, if you know physicians, they're all about details. When they do dictation, Brenda did, was a transcriber for years. And they just give every detail. It has to be in the record. And it's kind of like you see this part of him. He doesn't miss any detail. He gives all these different things. He's the only one that mentions Anna and Simeon having this interaction with Jesus when he's presented at the temple. He talks about, you know, all the things associated with his birth. And, and we don't have anything else about his childhood. Nothing about the childhood development of Jesus. Not any specifics. But if you look at verse 40 of Luke 2 it says the child grew and became strong he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him so it just kind of gives this summary of who he was as a child this is his summary of his childhood now the next thing that happens is that he's 12 years of age and we know all about that right when he was in the temple and he gets left by his family there's some people in this building may have left a child at church I've heard stories like that. We came close a couple of times just thinking they were with us and they weren't with us and we didn't leave the building, but it was kind of scary that way. We did have a, a little uh, exploratory two-year-old boy that uh, we had to watch all the time. He thought hiding from us was funny. That is not funny, especially when a singing group had this big bus and they had all of their stuff. This is in Lake City. And they had all this stuff and all these crates and they're putting them into, I mean, this is like a, a, a Greyhound bus. And we couldn't find Jason. And these people were still packing up. He had crawled up into that luggage compartment and was hiding from us. It still makes my heart, I'm going to skip a beat when I think about it. what if. But when, when 
children, when, when you have children, they're just, you just don't know what all they might do. But they're soaking up stuff. And this was a summary of his childhood. When you get to when he was a 12-year-old, he gets left in Jerusalem by his family. Now, they had a large family. They all traveled together like in a clan. And they just thought that he was with the group. About a day's journey out, they realized he wasn't. Well, you know the story. When they came back, it takes them three days to find him. And guess where he's at? This 12-year-old kid is at the temple, and he's there with scholars, and he's asking them questions. And he's soaking up everything he can get. And we see this in Bible quiz. We see this with our kids. It's amazing to watch these kids do Bible quiz. How they can learn and not just learn how they can recall and have to recall quickly. Well, this is what he was as a 12-year-old. He's just asking questions and then when we find him, they kind of are surprised that he's engaged and he's never seemed like he's out of sorts being away from his family all that time. But he's just soaking up this information. But we have nothing about his teenage years. We have nothing about when he's a 20-something-year-old. But again, Luke does a summary. And this is the last verse in Luke 52. And it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Uh, Paul, that's the four ways a boy grows, right? In Royal Rangers. That's where they get that verse. But this is the way we all grow. Think about this. Jesus grew or he increased mentally in wisdom, mentally, physically. He increased spiritually. He increased in the favor with God, with the, his, the relationship with his father. And he even invoked that as to why he was there. He says, I had to be in my father's house. And yet he turned right around and submitted to the authority of his earthly parents and in, in favor with men socially. So when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist and he headed off for 40 days in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he came out all of that and began to preach and teach and disciple and everybody was astounded, where did this man learn all this? The, even the trained professionals of that day wondered where did he learn this? It's like he went to the best rabbis, the best tutors. It's like he went through the hierarchy of higher education in their system. But here's what I think. You know, this is speculation, but here's what, what I think. That 12-year-old kid that was asking all those questions in Jerusalem of the scholars, I can see him as a 14-year-old with his hand raised at the synagogue Sabbath school and says, hey, can you explain that? What was Isaiah really saying there? Because one day he would hold that whole scroll of Isaiah in his hand and he would preach his first hometown message from Isaiah, Isaiah 61. So he had this insatiable appetite to invest in his mind, to learn, to draw everything he could from the Lord. And those Sabbath schools was one of the ways that was equipping him for ministry. The mind is a wonderful thing to invest in, isn't it? And he invested in it. Now I want to take you to Matthew 22. This is a great chapter. I hope you, you can turn there. I think we got some of the verses. Sorry about that first reference. I, I gave you the wrong chapter of that. Shame, you did very good, though. You <laughs> corrected my mistake. But Matthew 22 is a great, I love this chapter. I could read this again and again. Now, you know 
that it were deep into Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, and it really boils down, this is the last week. This is last week. He's already come in Jerusalem on uh, Palm Sunday, and it's on. This, this, is, this is as intense a battle as you will see because, you know, most people think that Jesus hardly ever ministered in Jerusalem. You, you, don't, you don't hardly ever see him in Jerusalem preaching. In fact, he didn't spend the night. The only nights that we know that he spent the night in Jerusalem is when he was a 12-year-old and the night he was arrested. Because the gospel accounts make a point that every day he went outside the city, probably to Bethany, and spent the night outside the city. Jerusalem was not his center of ministry. Galilee was his center of ministry. Capernaum, uh, his hometown, Chorazin, all of those up there in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he did the bulk of his ministry. Almost all of his ministry was up there. He would come down for the festivals, but he would go back up and do ministry. He hardly ever did ministry in Jerusalem. So here he is in Jerusalem, and they have planned this to the T to destroy this man. They weren't coming after him to shame him, to embarrass him, to trick him. Their real purpose was to kill him. They were triggering, trying to figure out a way how they could do away with him. It wasn't a battle of wits. It was a battle of life. And he knew that. So chapter 22 kind of captures some of this. Um, he, he gives this parable. He always speaks in these uh, word pictures to people. And he gives this parable. And after the parable, this is in verse 15. The Pharisees show up and they think they have the question to put the onus on him. To put him in a place to where however he answered this question, it was going to send a rippling effect adversely to him. It was a yes and no question. And you know the question. The Pharisees came and it says they brought the Herodians. This is kind of interesting in verse 16. It says they brought the Herodians with them. You know, when people hate someone so much, it doesn't matter what the coalition is when they have the same desire to, to destroy somebody. These, these people were so opposite. The Herodians were Jewish people who believed and supported the government, supported Rome, supported King Herod, supported the system, and the Pharisees were that conservative wing of the Sanhedrin that resented the presence of Rome and wanted Israel to get back to its nationality, its, its national entity. And so here's two, two groups of people show up together because they have a common interest. They want to destroy Jesus, and this is the question. Oh, I, I love how they preface the question. They, they spoke a lot of truth here. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, did they really believe that or are they just saying that? Because they, they couldn't be more true. You aren't swayed by others. True. Because you pay no attention to who they are. <laughs> Maybe True. Then tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax, the poll tax? It was a tax strictly that went to Caesar. Are we supposed to pay the poll tax, the imperial tax, to Caesar? 
Yes or no? If he said either one, he had trouble. He had trouble because whichever question, way he answered, one of those two groups would be releasing all kind of fury against him. If he said no, the Herodians would go banco. They would create a riot. They would do something. It, was, it would be on. And they were ready for that. If he said yes, then the Pharisees would go off the edge because they didn't like Rome. He didn't answer it that way, did he? His answer was, okay, bring me a coin that you pay this tax with. There's a particular coinage made for the imperial tax. And it had Caesar's inscription in his face on it. He says, whose inscription is this? It's Caesar. Well, give to Caesar what's his and give to God what's his. Well, they were really, they were really impressed. They thought they had it. Now, mind you, I think they probably sat around and discussed this ad nauseum as to what, how can we catch this man? How can we get him in a point that we can create such a controversy we will kill him or have him killed? So the Sadducees show up. Now, this was such a challenge for the Sadducees because they really, they really didn't have much act together. They, they, were the, they were the liberal wing of the Sanhedrin. They were the ones who did not believe in miracles, did not believe in the resurrection. I think it even says in Matthew 22 that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that anything outside of the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, was a scripture. They didn't believe any of the prophets were scripture. They didn't believe any of the Psalms, any of the Proverbs, none other of the 30-plus books of the Bible besides the Pentateuch. They didn't believe any of that was scripture. So they're coming to Jesus with what they think is the best challenge to him. And it was just a stupid hypothesis. It was, in fact, I think Jesus calls them stupid. Not, I, I don't even know if there's a Greek word for stupid, but there's an English word for it. <laughs> but I think when you read it, let me just tell you, here comes the Sadducees, this is verse 23. They don't say there's a resurrection. They say there's no resurrection. So they come to him, and you know the story. They say, teacher, Moses told us if a, a man married a woman and didn't have children, his brother was to marry the, the widow and raise up offspring for him. And that was a custom. If, if a, a brother married a woman and she did not bring a child and he died, then one of the brothers was responsible to marry her, and the first child that they had together was dedicated to that deceased brother and they counted that person that boy or girl as a descendant of him and they kept his ancestry alive and so they give this uh, hypothetical situation that well these are seven brothers and they all marry the same woman and they all die and then she dies and here's the question who is going to be the who who of the seven is she going to be the wife of since all of them were married to her? And Jesus does say they're stupid. <laughs> I, I'm, these, these guys would have made great Mormons. They, maybe that's where Joseph Smith got his idea from, <laughs> was the Sadducees. Um, and, and listen, I'm not picking on Mormons. Christianity was around 1,800 years when Joseph Smith came along and said he had a new revelation. And uh, the angel Moroni showed him some hidden tablets in New York, and he unearthed them, and he 
translated the Book of Mormon from him. Nobody saw the tablets but him. And lo and behold, an angel took the tablets up into heaven, and nobody really got to see them other than him. Okay. And they come up with this whole new form of Christianity that they believe. And this is why when they're married in the temple, they're married for time and eternity, meaning they'll be married in heaven. I have asked Brenda before, I was like, when we get to heaven, would you kind of like just say hello to me every now and then? Or, or would you even be thinking? So she, of course I would. So I, I was relieved by that. But we're not going to be married. There's no marriage in heaven. And I've even encountered... and. and and I have a heart for those who are Mormons and a heart for those who are Jehovah's Witnesses. I've never turned any of them away when they encounter me and want to talk to me. I want to talk to them about Jesus, about his death and resurrection and that faith. And that is the only way to be saved. And all of the other stuff that they have said is true is not true at all. And Jesus said this. There's no marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. Now, as far as I'm concerned, when he said there's no marriage in heaven... I think there's no marriage in heaven. And these two young Mormon missionaries that really encountered me on the campus at the University of Alabama, and they walked up to me. I was in a suit and tie because I was there for a reception. And they located me in the parking lot, and here they come. And I couldn't wait for them to get to me. And he says, you could be like one of us. I said, I am, I am like y'all. I'm a missionary too. You are? I said, yeah, I'm a missionary for Jesus. And the guy was training the other guy, and, and, and I looked at the young guy that's being trained. And I says, do you know that Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven? Do you know he said that? And yet, are they telling you that there's marriage in heaven? Now, are you going to take what Jesus said, or are you going to take what they said? And here's the trainer's like, well, let me, let, me, uh, let me just, and then he jumps in, and I'm talking. And I says, listen, I'm going to say to you, Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven. And here's Sadducees, they are way off. Now, I kind of like what uh, the, the message says about this. The message says you're off base on two counts. And I take that as like, you're stupid. <laughs> you don't know your Bibles, and you don't know how God works. If you're reading out of the NIV, it says you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures. You are ignorant of the Scriptures. You don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. You see, it was in their decision to believe the Scriptures, to accept the Scriptures. They didn't come to that conclusion because they were poor, helpless people that didn't know any better. They had the Word of God. They were raised around the Word of God. They were raised around Isaiah and the Psalms and the Proverbs. And they decided that they would only stick with the first five books of the Bible. And out of that, somehow, they think there's, there's going to be marriage in heaven for those who believe in it. They didn't even believe in heaven. They're given a scenario to Jesus they didn't believe could be possible at all. So the information was there. These are men. This was the high priest. These were the wealthy people in the Sanhedrin. These were the power brokers. The, San, the Sadducees were not the larger of the two, but they were the more liberal of the two. And these were the most high up people in Jewish priesthood. And they did not believe in the resurrection. And they think their belief would put Jesus behind the eight ball. They're wasting their minds. They're really in wasting their minds. So this would be really interesting if that kind of solved everything. But the Pharisees weren't finished. He put them to shame. 
by their first effort, and they saw the Sadducees, and I could I could just see the Pharisees standing over. It's like, boy, he really got them. They had it coming. That was a stupid hypothesis. But here comes the Pharisees again, and instead of asking him a political question, they ask him a theological question. One of the scholars out of the group came to them and says, Lord, um, what's the greatest commandment? Out of all the commandments, what's the greatest commandment? And I don't know. It's hard to say what their thinking was. Why would they ask him that? Did they have a list of what would be the best? And down, did they grade the commandments? And was it the first two commandments? Or was it on down to no coveting or committing murder? Or, or where, where is he going to go in those ten commandments or other commandments? Well, his answer was totally unprepared. They were totally unprepared. He said the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great, the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. They didn't ask for number two, but he's going to give it to them anyway. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on what a statement. The entirety of the Old Testament rests on those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you make those two preeminent in your life, you're right in the thick of what God wanted to reveal in the law and the prophets. This was his whole point, is to love him and love the other people around you. But he's not finished. And, and I'm going to conclude with this, and the praise team can come up. He's not finished. They've been pestering him with questions. He walks out and he asks them a question. And he poses the scenario to them. He says, what do you think of Messiah? What's your opinion of Messiah? Whose son is he? And they say, well, he's the son of David. And then he goes back and he says, then why did David say, the Lord, I spoke to the Lord and says, make my enemies your footstool. Why did he call him Lord if he's his son? In the last part of chapter 22, if you're there, they, they were done. They, they were finished. They, that, that shut them down, and now they had to figure out a different way, and the different way was to bribe one of his own apostles to turn him in. None of the other things worked. But if you go back to that greatest commandment, and the second one is like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I think, I think we love God easily with our heart, don't we? What we sense in our soul, his, the relationship we have with him. But I wonder how much we love him with our mind. Again and again, Jesus spoke to people that he was teaching and preaching to, and he says, what your eyes see and what your ears hear determines the person you are. Because everything that comes in those, through those two senses, what we see and what we hear, becomes the major input of how we develop our mind. Which means this, we need this book 
keep soaking into our minds. We need the Word of God. We need the truth that's in this book permeating our minds because we have so many other voices outside of us clamoring for our attention and our focus. This is one of the reasons why virtual schooling is not nearly as good as in-class schooling because it's the focus and it's the the whole point of interacting with a teacher, asking questions. And this is how Jesus developed mentally. He, he looked and he asked questions and, and he got to the point that all of the information he was getting became part of who he was. And when he began to preach, all of those Sabbath schools, all of that that he learned at the temple that day as a 12-year-old, all of that was part of who he became. I don't know about you, but I want to become more and more mentally in touch with the Lord. Would you stand with me? Thank you, Lord. Lord, help us to guard our minds, to guard what's coming in through our sight and through our hearing. You've created it in such an amazing way that we can process information from multiple sources. That information is in error. We tend to jeopardize our view like the Sadducees. We come to conclusions that's not based in your word. and We don't need to have a different posture about anything outside of your word, Lord. You've called us to love people. You haven't called us to win arguments. You haven't called us to embarrass others. You've called us to know you to know you and to love those to love those who are in Mormonism, to love those who are following the teaching of of Charles Taz Russell or those in Scientology those who are in different religions, Lord we, we have your death and resurrection to declare to them this is the hope of the world help us Lord to be proactive not only in our own minds but in declaring unsearchable riches of your word give us boldness give us a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit that takes us past fear and intimidation that we will speak to those that differ from us your hope we surrender ourselves to you Lord speak to us, speak to our minds speak to our hearts all of us in this room we standing, could you just recommit, rededicate whatever you feel pressed to do say, Lord, I want I want to grow in you, I want to learn help me help me help my mind to be clear, help my mind not to be cluttered help my thoughts to be structured if you're dealing with memory issues, just ask the Lord to heal you to help us to help our mind to operate and function right Lord, regardless of our age in this room, 
would you pour out your healing upon us mentally? I pray right now for those who struggle with that and they know they're struggling with it, that you would come in a mighty touch of your power and bring remedy and healing to their mental functions. We want to love you with our mind and we want our minds to be well. In Jesus' name.